Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. This is On the Environment, a podcast by the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Ivana Andrade, a master's student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, we're in the studio with Wendy Silver, a professor of ecosystem ecology at UC Berkeley, where she teaches and runs a lab in ecosystem ecology and biogeochemistry. Wendy earned her PhD here at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and she's returning now to speak with students and faculty about her research on grassland carbon sequestration. Wendy, it's a pleasure to have you in the studio and back on campus. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Your research suggests that even low rates of carbon sequestration in grasslands can represent a significant sink of atmospheric CO2. Can you break down for listeners first why you're focusing on grasslands, what makes them unique, and second, what the carbon sequestration potential of grasslands means for climate change? Sure. So we started to look at grasslands for two reasons. The first reason was because grassland soils under a natural healthy condition are very carbon rich. And that's because grasslands tend to grow in places where there's not enough water all year long. So they experience drought for some portion of the year. And when plants experience drought, they have the strategy of taking a lot of their energy and hence their carbon and shunting it below ground to roots, and those roots serve the purpose of hunting, hunting for water for the plant. And so, so they make a lot of, of root biomass. They put a lot of that energy below ground. And any time you put carbon into the soil in the form of roots, you increase the potential of, of storing that carbon for longer periods of time. So it can help build organic matter. So plants capture carbon through the process of photosynthesis. So they bring CO2 into their tissues. In grasslands, they'll, they'll build root biomass with that down below ground, and some of that carbon that goes into that root biomass has the potential to get trapped in the soil. And so it's removing CO2 out of the atmosphere, storing carbon in soils. So one of the reasons we chose grasslands was because grasslands are particularly good at taking CO2, forming root biomass, and then turning that into soil organic matter. The second reason we chose grasslands was because Grasslands are one of the most geographically um, dominant um, land cover types globally. They cover about 30% of the global land area uh, and about 40 to 50% of the, of the land area in the state of California where we've been doing this research. So when you have such a broad um, land base with just even small rates of carbon sequestration, you have the potential to sequester a lot of carbon in soils. At one point, you were quite skeptical about the ability to measure the capacity of soil to absorb carbon. And over the years, though, you've been surprised by your results. And you've been quoted saying that finding carbon change in in soil is more like finding bricks in a haystack rather than needles. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So so the soil carbon pool on a global basis is a very big pool of carbon. Um, And even though uh, many grassland systems are degraded with regard to how much carbon they have, in other words, they've lost some of their native soil carbon, it's still a really big pool. So think of it like a swimming pool. And if you drop um, 
you know, a, something small into into this swimming pool like a bobby pin, right? It's going to be hard to find that that um, bobby pin in the pool, um, and that's what it is with carbon. We're looking at at a, a big pool with a relatively small addition to it that's that's hard to detect. And so when we started this research, we were skeptical as to whether or not we'd actually even be able to detect a change, whether our tools were sophisticated enough to be able to see that relatively small change in this existing large background pool. Uh, but what we found was that we could, that 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 management can change soil carbon storage significantly enough. It's actually not as small an input as we thought, uh, that we can detect that change. Um, and over the course of the study, we've developed more techniques that give us and better and better sensitivity to be able to, to see those changes. Uh, but regardless, the, the changes are big uh, relative to what we thought they were going to be. And, and so that's allowed us to really um, explore what the effects of changes in management are on carbon storage in these ecosystems. Can you describe maybe one breakthrough, one research breakthrough that you've had, whether it's you know, uh, in regards to a technology or a theoretical sort of realization? One of the most exciting results um, came about when my graduate student, Rebecca Riles, uh, collaborated with, with folks at, at the University of California in Merced to use this, a, a technology called DRIFT. It's, um, the technical name is Fournier Transform Infrared Spectroscopy. And what that does simply is allow us to identify a chemical signature in different forms of organic material. And when she took the compost that we added to our rangelands as our carbon sequestration management approach uh, and put it, it used this drift technology to, to look at the chemical signature, she came up with a, a distinct um, signature, a distinct chemical ID that we could use. And uh, then she went back to her field sites after three years and looked at, at the, the carbon in different parts of the soil, and she could identify where the compost had gone using this technology. And it was really exciting because what, what it showed us was that even though the compost had been just added as a, a thin surface dressing, essentially just sprayed on the surface, we could trace that, that compost moving into the soil, so down through the soil profile, and then also into the little soil aggregates, those little clods of soil that you see in, the, in you know, when, you, when you dig around in your garden. And inside those little clods, we found compost. And when it gets inside there, it gets trapped, and the probability of it staying there is much greater than if it were just sitting on the surface. Um, and so the carbon that gets trapped in those little the little aggregates or that works its way down into the soil has a bigger effect at slowing climate change than something that's just going to degrade quickly over the course of, of months to a year. So that suggested to us that carbon, this carbon that we were adding was going to stick around and could, could actually have a significant impact on climate change. That's really fascinating. Can you describe a little bit the ways that you and your graduate students interface with land managers and farmers? Yeah, so that's been a new experience for me. Um, you know, being somebody who's worked primarily with other scientists, uh, when I got involved in the Marin Carbon Project, it came about because a rancher came to meet with me at, at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, where I have an appointment, and asked me if there's anything I could do to slow climate change. And I, I just looked at him like, what? What are you talking about? You know, I'm a scientist. And he said, well, I, I was... 
um, listening to the radio the other day, and I heard about this climate change problem that we're having, and I'm terrified. I have land. You know, my, my friends and neighbors all have land. We need to be able to utilize that land in the future to, to grow um, crops and to, to, to make food. And, and I'm, I'm afraid for my livelihood and that of my, my neighbors. Um, what can we do? Um, to slow this process. And specifically, he was interested in, in whether or not we could do something in the soil. He had learned that that a lot of grasslands globally have lost some of their carbon and was wondering if there was any way to get it back in there. And I said, well, you know, that's a really interesting question. And that's where I came out first and said, well, I'm not even sure we could detect a change if we, if we were able to increase carbon. Um, but I said, you know, let, let's look into it. And so we started a research project. This was about eight years ago now. And uh, first found that we could increase soil carbon um, or that we could detect soil carbon. And then we, we, we started to think about, well, how could we, how could we increase it? And um, one, of, one of the uh, people who I got to meet through, through uh, getting to know this rancher was, uh, was a Ph.D. range management expert. He's a guy who who works with landowners to help them come up with management plans uh, over the long run to, to keep their farms um, productive and sustainable over time. And he's a real guru. His name is Jeff Creek. He's a real compost, compost guru. He, he thinks compost is wonderful, and he thinks it improves ecosystems in a lot of ways. And, and so he was trying to talk me into using compost. And I argued with him, of course, and said, what? You know, compost is going to increase the greenhouse gas emissions. It's going to create all kinds of invasive species. It's just going to be a nightmare. And he said, no, really, this is what we should do. And we had a lot of discussions. And so finally, I agreed to do it, if only to prove him wrong. Because as one of my professors at Yale used to tell me, it's a lot easier to publish papers about the world going to hell than it is to publish papers about things that, that are positive. And I said, well, this will make an easily, easy, easy to publish result. So we bought compost and we went out to some working ranches and applied the compost in thin layers, worked with the ranchers to make sure that they were using the best management practices they could with regard to grazing and all the other activities that they do. And we began to follow the carbon. And Jeff was right, and I was wrong. We saw increases in plant growth. We saw no uh, loss of biodiversity. We saw no increases in invasive species. And we saw significant amounts of carbon sequestration in those, those rangelands. And we've now continued to work with ranchers um, on other sites to make sure that our results are robust. We're also now working with uh, a resource conservation district. Um, we're working with uh, county ag commissioner and a couple nonprofits who are trying to help develop this uh, technology and these ideas into an implementation program that can be uh, used by a wider range of people. Can you describe a few recent changes that have happened with regard to carbon policy? Yeah, there's been some very exciting developments in this area uh, with regard to our research. Um, as, a, as a scientist in academia, um, even as an environmental scientist in academia, we often don't see the, um, the fruits of our labor quite so directly in policy. As an academic scientist, usually our reward is a publication in a, in a scientific journal or a grant from the National Science Foundation or a similar national agency. Um, but with this project, it's been a little different. Um, this 
with this project, uh, primarily because of the partners that we've had that I just mentioned, um, it's uh, stimulated a lot of interest in in exploring potential policy changes that would facilitate this kind of a practice. Um, and so one of the big exciting things that happened recently was the um, passage of a protocol. Um, and a protocol is a uh, an approach that's been scientifically tested and, and then rigorously reviewed by by both the scientific community but also a policy community and, and other interested parties, um, generally at the state or federal level. And uh, this was a, a, a protocol for the application of compost onto rangelands as a carbon sequestration approach. The American Carbon Registry recently approved the protocol, uh, which means that now ranchers can use this as a carbon offset approach and actually trade carbon credits on a carbon market. So that was really exciting. Uh, that means that now there's a, uh, some financial incentive for uh, ranchers to get involved in this kind of a carbon farming approach. Um, the second thing that happened uh, that was a surprise and, and exciting for us was to see our project actually mentioned in a recent uh, report that was released by the White House on increasing resiliency of U.S. natural resources. Um, and they highlighted our project as... as um, the kinds of actions that people can take to try to improve resiliency in the, in the face of climate change. And while we, we think of carbon sequestration in, in grasslands as, as a way of slowing climate change, it's also a way of helping hedge your bets against future climate change because organic matter, which is the form in which we're adding carbon to soils, helps uh, retain moisture in soils. And one of the things that grasslands suffer from frequently is drought, and we're expecting severe drought in, in some parts of the country and so in the future. And so adding more organic matter um, helps buffer these ecosystems against drought, and so it's a, it's a good thing to do uh, to improve resiliency as well as trying to slow climate change. There have been instances where unwanted compost has either been thrown out or shipped around the country because somebody doesn't really know how to use it or doesn't want to use it. Can you describe what your research about compost and organic matter in the soils might mean for small-scale composting or urban composting um, and maybe even urban gardening or urban farming? Yeah, that's one of the most exciting things I find about this research is, is that we all have stuff we have to throw out, um, and it's pretty easy to separate out the organic waste from the non-organic waste. Organic meaning anything that was food or any kind of paper that touched food, anything that was once alive. All of that can go into the compost pile. Um, and and we know that compost comes had come originally from live plants. So all of those nutrients and all of that energy that went in to build those plants eventually goes into the compost. And when we're applying that compost onto land, all we're doing is returning those nutrients and that energy back to the land so that it can be used again. It's recycling, right? And and so there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to use up all of that compost, either in, in um, large-scale agriculture or in urban agriculture, in your gardens, in your, you know, in your front lawns. 
in Berkeley um, and in, in the city of San Francisco, they recently started um, mandatory curbside composting. And so we all were given green bins to put into our kitchens and, and large green bins that go out by the curb, and it gets pr- pr- uh, collected every week. And then uh, anybody can go to the Waste Management Authority and pick up a bag of compost to use in your gardens. Um, and now that people are beginning to realize the value of compost, if you think about it, it's just it's an organic fertilizer. So it's a cheap organic fertilizer, slow release, so it's uh, beneficial for the plants. Um, it, there's no reason not to be using it. So I think we're going to find eventually that there's not enough compost to go around as opposed to that compost getting thrown out or wasted. It's interesting. We create technologies to, to have slow-release compost, and it's sitting in our kitchens. Yeah, exactly. I think on that note, on that positive note, we'll wrap up the podcast. Thank you, Wendy. Your perspective has given us um, a really positive outlook on, on climate change. So thanks for that. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.